I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Welcome back, broken people. This is Summer. And this is Felina. And today we have... We have um, my good friend Alex Rains. And uh, he's going to talk to us today about uh, his heroin addiction and uh, recovery from. So, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So... Yeah. Um, so I guess tell me a little, first. How long have you been sober? So I have been off the junk now. Uh, I, I don't want to say sober because I, I do still drink. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I do still smoke smoke pot. Yeah. Um, but I have been off the junk since uh, let's see here would have been Cinco de Mayo, so May fifth. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so we're about. Six, seven months. Six. Yeah, six uh, months. yeah I uh, I kind of quit counting a while yeah, ago. I've been months, uh, been off and on it for a while now. So mm-hmm. I uh, gave up on counting time and just focus <laughs> on uh, the day to day. Just day to day, and yeah, just uh, keeping a healthy mindset. Okay. So. Uh, well, you and I, I've known you for a very long time since yes. you were like. 17, 18? I don't yeah, know how old are you? Absolutely. At I think um, I had just turned 18 and we met um, at a Halloween party, actually. Oh, yeah, it was at my house. It was, it was. <laughs> so we met at a Halloween party and uh, just hit it off immediately. Yeah, and uh, you were working, we were all working at Hastings at the mm-hmm. time. I had no idea you were going to become such a long term friend. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy how people cross paths. Yeah, but uh, so at 18, I mean, obviously, like, you came to our house and we're drinking beer or whatever, mm-hmm. but, like, where did you first, like, when did it happen that you first decided to do heroin? Like, how did that even happen? So, it actually didn't start with heroin for me. Um, I grew up uh, locally here in Norman. And uh, when I was in high school, um, you know, obviously high schoolers do what high schoolers do. So we, <laughs> we were partying. And um, for me, it started with, uh, the, actually my, my first love before heroin was cocaine. Um, it was really big um, while I was in school and it was accessible. And so that's kind of what, uh, what kickstarted it. And I'd say probably my first substance abuse issue would have been with with cocaine and then um, and that was when you were in high school that's when I was in high school and that went on probably until uh, probably until I was about 19 or 20 mm-hmm. um, and then I had a scary situation rise the first of, of many um, where uh, you know I, uh, I did a, a lot too much one night and uh, kind of freaked myself out and had to take a step back um, from that and so yeah um, you know, I had a great group of friends through high school, um, and we did what you know we did what younger kids do. We experimented a lot. Um, at that time, too, OxyContin was mm-hmm. uh, was still really readily uh, readily available, and uh, so Oxy and Coke were kind of the two big things. And um, I happened to love both of them, <laughs> um, but I really didn't get into opiates. For me, it started with prescription drugs until I was probably twenty one. 21 or 22, I had a good group of friends that were all living together. And uh, Where would you get the pills? So, you know, I, I had a friend whose um, grandmother actually was chronic with, with cancer but was not taking her pain medication, so it was readily available to another friend. And it started out just kind of uh, sporadically. You know, we'd um, at this point I was just taking them orally and, uh, you know, we would do that and drink and get a good buzz going and and that developed into actually one of my best friends um, was was far deeper into it than I was and we kind of followed each other down that path um, then I got myself into uh, for me it wasn't just the use it was the lifestyle that came with it um, okay. I delved into uh, uh, distribution I guess if you will. <laughs> distribution if you will of uh, of several different substances and um, with that came um, really for me it kind of filled up a, a hole um, I grew up a you know a, a heavy guy um, and just never really felt like I uh, I fit in 
And so I was a chameleon from a young age. Yeah. Um, which has been great as I've gotten older. It's allowed me to really, uh, I don't want to say mold myself, but my experiences have turned it into a point where I, I like to think I'm approachable to, to most people just because I've always had to live my life that way. The difference now is that I'm able to be genuine when I do that instead of instead of hiding this uh, affliction that I've got. Um, so, yeah, jumped into it, and with that came a lot of uh, things that I felt like I'd missed out on earlier in life. Um, you know, just like the friendship groups, the friendship, and feeling yeah, and you know, yeah. when you have something that so many people want. Um, it makes you feel important. It does. It. And yeah. you've got people around you and, you know, I mean, nobody uh, particularly enjoys that feeling. At least I never did of, uh, of just feeling alone. And for a long time for me, you know, I could be in a crowded room but still feel alone. Yeah. And um, so what that did for me was it gave me a purpose. The phone would ring and there'd be a constant group of people there. And if that came money and um, power, if you will, and, you know, I mean... Uh, some attraction from the opposite sex and all of these things that I had craved or just put a, you know, a, a big value mm-hmm. on, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a younger guy, those were of like paramount importance to me because I looked around and I would see all of these guys that I thought I wanted to be like, mm-hmm. and they were doing all of this. And so it allowed me to live a lifestyle that I felt like I wanted to live, but in actuality through all of it, um, I found myself just completely miserable, yeah. regardless of, of who was around or um, how much money was in my pocket or, you know, it, it just, nothing was able to fill up that hole. Um, and I didn't understand it until a lot later. Um, I really didn't understand that I was kind of treating the um, the symptoms, I guess the ism. Of a- uh, depression perhaps yeah, or... depression or just you know I feel like with most addicts or, or alcoholics um, you know they call it alcoholism um, mm-hmm. and for me I think theism has been the thing that's kind of uh, haunted me the most it's just that feeling inside of never being good enough and just you know I functioned on fear for such a long time and functioning on fear put me in some really rough places um, and took me to do some things that I never thought that I'd do you know I I, uh, I grew up in a really good household um, to two hard-working parents um, middle thing, class yeah middle white class. dude yeah exactly you know typical uh, <laughs> typical millennial you know and it was interesting growing up you know my father was pretty self-made and worked it worked his way up from the bottom to a, a pretty prominent position with the company that he was with. So with that came a lot of lifestyle changes with the family. And so we kind of moved up from that lower middle class to being pretty, um, you know, we found some prosperity. And uh, and so things changed and I looked around and, and for me, it just seemed like everybody around me put such a value on um, what you had. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that's what life was it was like what you've got defines you as as who you are and and the people that want to be around you and I just didn't have enough self-respect at that point to to realize that I was surrounding myself with people that didn't necessarily want to be around me they wanted to be around what I had Mm -hmm. and so using you yeah exactly so how old were you during this period during your distribution you know, I, I was really in pretty heavily from, uh, I think I started small when I was about 22 and then found myself moving up the ranks, if you will, uh, to being in pretty deep by about the time I was about 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and had you started doing heroin yourself yet? So I had not started doing heroin myself yet. Um, at this point, what I was actually doing, um, the first time I, I used uh any drug intravenously um i was 23 and at that point i was uh i was using oxycontin or or roxy set Um, i didn't even know you could do that yeah honestly Mm -hmm. i don't know things yeah i I remember (laughs) it uh to a t i had a couple friends that were doing it and you know i'd always sworn that that was something i was like nah i don't need to do that And, and i'm guilty of uh laying judgment off on those before i was like oh that's you know what a bunch of junkies <laughs> you know I just like to party and I guess because I was just you know snorting them or, or, or eating them that uh, I put myself on a bit of a pedestal and then 
eventually uh, that quit working. Mm-hmm. And I found myself in a spot where I was just like, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. And it was, uh, it was love at, at, you know, love at first sight. So I actually really didn't get into heroin until um, I'd used it like once or twice just because it was around and at this point I was so physically dependent on opiates that I would take whatever was available and I found myself in treatment actually I went to a rehab for the first time in 2012 so you would have been so at that point I would have been let's see here six years ago uh, that would have been yes yeah, six years ago so I would have been 24 okay um, and I didn't go to rehab because I, I wanted to go to rehab. I went to rehab because I wanted to fade some heat. My family, it, it's very noticeable when I'm under the influence. Uh, my attitude changes and my priorities change dramatically. And so... So your parents knew? Yeah, they had they had an idea and I was pretty honest with them about my, my opiate use. I was doing things uh, that were uncharacteristic, like um, disappearing just for weeks at a time and not answering the phone. and. Uh, just kind of crashing different couches from here and there and, and going where the party was and you know while most people were waking up and going to work or going to class I was you know staying up and doing my thing until four or five in the morning and then sleeping until two and then waking up and at that point it was time to uh, to hustle if you will and do what I needed to do to, to get through the day and get what I needed so my lifestyle changed and it was uncomfortable it was not anything that I was used to but I learned quickly how to um, survive and manipulate my way into getting what I felt like I needed to get to get through each day. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in treatment. So Let's you were trying it. to get away from some, some heat? Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> folks were like, listen, you're not yourself. We want you to go to rehab. And they were still helping me out a little bit. Um, financially? It, yeah, financially they were helping me out. Um, it had gone from making money and putting that money towards the things that I needed to, to making money and then immediately turning it around to get just what I needed to make enough money for the next day so that I could make sure to stay well and just live in day to day. When you say stay well, can you kind of give, because uh, I know a lot of people who haven't been around opiate withdrawals mm-hmm. don't know what that's like. So um, with opiates, one of the things is with long-term use, your body becomes physically dependent. And um, once you're physically dependent, um, you have essentially a window of time from the time that you use the last time until the time that your body, you become sick. Um and it's not just, you know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Mentally, uh, the craving is there, but physically, you know, you go through some symptoms uh, very similar to like the flu, um, a lot of cold sweats, your body hurts, uh, restless leg, it's just miserable. And so it went from being like, I want to get high to being like, well, I need to do what I need to do to make sure that I'm not sick tomorrow what am I gonna do and so what that turns into is at this point the recreation um, and the activity of using was gone and it would be something like uh, you know I could have a, an abundance of whatever substance it was that I that I felt like I needed and even though I had that in front of me I was always a step ahead worried about when I was not going to have that um, and so Opiate addiction really uh, reached out and, and kind of just punched me in the face. And I, you know, I remember the first time being sick, going, "What is this all about?" But I knew from that moment on, I never wanted to feel that way again. Um, come to find out, I, I found myself in that situation many, many times yeah. um, since. But you know, it just it did. It took over, um, and it changed me. It changed my personality a lot. Um, and you know, as a depressant too, my mental health really took a dive too. I found myself in a really dark spot. Um, you know, the things that I were, or the things that I had grown up enjoying, um, really took a backseat to to just making sure that I could that I could stay high or or, or even just stay well, as mm-hmm. as you'll find some people say, it, just to stay unsick. Um, so just enough to keep from going into exactly yeah just enough yeah I just want to make sure because for me that you know the second you get sick it's like uh, it's a paralyzing um, it's a paralyzing episode if you will because you're just so sick you just feel like you can't get up and do anything Um, 
the the flip side of that is that you'll put yourself in some really um, insane situations in order to uh, in in order to make sure that doesn't happen. So yeah, went to rehab for the first time in a little place here in Oklahoma and at twenty four. At twenty four. First time of rehab. First time of rehab, yeah. I know there were several. First of several. Uh, when did you stay the first yeah. time? So I completed the program in 83 days, and I thought um, I thought at that point it was like, I know what I need to do. I just need, you know, for me, it was just as simple as just not doing. Um, I just won't do them, mm-hmm. is what I told myself, um, which I found to be just a really unrealistic right. expectation. Um for something that's as gripping and as powerful as that, I've, I've come to find out there are some things I have to do on a personal level to maintain um, a mindset that keeps me away from that lifestyle. And so I got out and you know I, I was very arrogant about um, my condition and did exactly the opposite of what <laughs> they told me to do and ended up um, as sick as this is, you know, women are a big part of my story as well mm-hmm. um so you know they, they tell you um when you're cleaning your life up stay out of relationships for a while um it's supposed to be this time of self-exploration and uh so me being the genius that uh, that i thought i was <laughs> i got out and um immediately got into a relationship interestingly enough with a girl that used to be a, uh, a client of mine um, when I was... Distributing. Distributing. <laughs> um, but uh, I thought that since it wasn't opiates that um, I usually dealt with with her, that it would be okay. And uh, within a month, um, we had moved in together. And within about six weeks, um, I was back at it. Mm-hmm. So I went on about an 11-month bender, if you will, where I managed to just uh, burn whatever bridges I had left in place and found myself in treatment and at this point. For the second time. Yeah, for the second time. And at this point, it was not, um, I was not of the opinion that I was going to do just enough to get by. Every time I used, I used uh, for oblivion. I wanted to get mm-hmm. as high as possible and stay as high as possible. And I told myself just because of that feeling, like this is what I want to do all the time and so I managed to uh, ruin a relationship pretty quickly and I found myself in the darkest really the darkest spot that I've been mentally um, after 11 months of, of heavy IV use and, and the heroin had really come into the picture at this point okay. because as some people know around this would have been around 2013 yeah right around 2013 um, they kind of started to crack down on prescription drugs in the state mm-hmm. so oh, it became familiar yeah sure so it became uh not as available but you know um the demand is still there so heroin became very popular um among the circle of people that i was um surrounding myself with and it was a, a in my in my opinion it was a, it was a great solution in that moment it was cheaper um you was, know i've actually heard and read some stories about people who actually needed the opioids for pain meds or whatever mm-hmm. like turning to heroin because it became too expensive which yeah. is so right. wild to yeah. think about absolutely and uh you know like i was still very naive as to what the consequences of um heroin use were um, at this point nobody had uh, i'd had no one close or, or knew nobody that had passed away from overdoses um but what i managed to do in that 11 month span was catch my first felony or uh, it was for false declaration of ownership to a pawn shop. Um, yeah, so allegedly, I, uh, you <laughs> know, unquote. yeah, quote unquote, according to the uh, Cleveland County District Attorney, I, uh, <laughs> I sold a stolen TV to a pawn shop. And so I uh, was sitting on my patio. And this was to get money for drugs. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Every every dollar. That, yeah. That, every yeah. buck that I had come in uh, at that point, it was like basically like if I had a hundred bucks in my pocket, it would be like okay, sweet. I've got uh, I've got ninety four dollars for heroin and six bucks for a pack of cigarettes, and and that and I was fine. Like mm-hmm. I was on cloud nine at that point because I knew that day was gonna be all right. And uh, so I was actually sitting on my patio in my apartment at this point. And uh, two of uh, two of Norman's finest, 
um, showed up and said they wanted to ask me a couple questions. And I said, well, that's cool. We can talk. You guys just stay on that side of the patio and I'll stay right here. And they said, that's not quite how this <laughs> works out. So they came in and, uh, yeah, so I got a free ride to, uh, to taxi service. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I got a free ride, uh, in my first experience with handcuffs that evening. And, um, you were 25. I was, I was 25 and it was embarrassing. Um, my, uh, my aunt worked for the district attorney's office for about 30 years and my mother, um, had worked for the Cleveland County courthouse as a court reporter for geez, off and on, uh, since about 1990 so it's not like this was one of those things that I was going to be able to brush under the table so I had to get honest about that and I found myself in treatment for the second time I went to Valley Hope here in Cushing and even those consequences at that point um, were not enough I went to Valley Hope and made it 22 days at Valley Hope and then uh, again being the genius that I am ended up getting high in treatment, um, <laughs> which they frown upon. Yes. And, uh, so yeah. So, um, but that was a little bit of a blessing in itself because they referred me to a, uh, treatment center in Arizona. And so on January 4th of 2014, I, uh, packed up and moved and went to uh, five months of inpatient treatment in a place in, uh, in Prescott, Arizona and cleaned up and uh, managed to stay sober at that point for about 13 months. Um, but again, uh, got myself involved in a bad relationship with somebody and then decided- it Did was you meet her in rehab? I did. Yeah, I recall this one. Yeah, I met her so in rehab, so of course I was like, it's meant to be. And, uh, and she was from Enid and we were in Arizona, so I was like, oh, that's a sign. And um, so, <laughs> yeah. No, I have some sick thoughts. Um, so, yeah, um, made it about 13 months and then got a great job opportunity in Austin. And we both packed up and moved to Austin, Texas. And uh, I, again, uh, was doing absolutely nothing to um, maintain a healthy, you know, mindset. And I got to Austin and within, uh, I mean, this is just crazy. Within about 10 days... Uh, you know, I knew nobody there, and I was working a, um, I guess you could call it a corporate job. So just to kind of give you a picture of that desperation, here I am. Um, I know nobody in Austin, but I Googled, like, what the uh, the bad neighborhoods were. <laughs> and so I'm in Austin, Texas, in, like, office attire, uh, basically pounding the pavement out there, walking around, like, a cold calling, basically being like, hey, like, where can I score some dope? And uh, that had to have just been an obscene thing to witness, but, you know. And you had been sober for 13 months. 13 months. And yeah. after 10 days in Austin, you decided... Yeah, I decided, you know, it would probably be a good idea. Life is really good right now. <laughs> I should start doing heroin again. And, uh, <laughs> and, and your girlfriend at the time, did she know this or was she... So she was uh, sober, but also... Um, how can I put this nicely? We were just very sick together and mm. we fed off each other's sickness. So what that looked like was, um, <laughs> so before I'd gone to Austin, um, we had a puppy and this dog got sick and it also had separation anxiety. And so I take this dog to the vet and I'm like, listen, this dog freaks out every time I leave and she tears stuff up. So the vet actually wrote my puppy a prescription for Xanax, um, and of the uh, of the sixty Xanax that uh, they prescribed the dog, I want to say she. In fact, I, I'm pretty positive she got zero of them. So you know, I was like, "Well, I'm anxious," and uh, so. Oh my god. Yeah. So I yeah. Is it the same shit? It's not it's human Xanax. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It was actual from the, from the pharmacy Xanax. Um, so yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. So I, I was never even thought. That's creative. Oh, it gets creative, even, Alex. It gets even better. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah. So I'm eating my dog Xanax and like you do. Right. <laughs> um, and she's eating the dog Xanax as well, and then she decides it'd be a good idea to start drinking on top of them. So what it looks like. For a while, yeah. So what it looked like for a while was uh, like I would wake up and uh, take just enough to keep the edge off and go to work. 
And she would sit at home and drink a fifth of Tito's uh, vodka a day wow. and eat Xanax. And so the dog runs out of the uh, of the prescription and, and we take her to a different vet in Austin. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, what you gave us was not enough. And she ends up writing just an astronomical amount um, of Xanax for my dog, oh, which would have been like a human supply for probably 60 days. And that was gone within two weeks. Um, so drug shopping at the vet instead of the ER. Yeah, drug that shopping. That is so creative. Oh, and so after that 14 days, I called the vet and I'm like, look, this dog's still freaking out. And she writes me another script. And so I go to fill my dog's prescription um, at Walmart. And they're like, uh, your dog has been um, red flagged by the DEA. So I had a puppy that was on the DEA drug watch list. Um <laughs> So that was a high point in my uh, in my using career. Um, so yeah. So you were in Austin. So yeah, I'm in Austin. Eating your dog's Xanax and pounding the pavement in your business attire. Yeah, and so for no. I end, yeah, and so You're one 25. day. So yeah, exactly. I'm 25, <laughs> and one day um, I'm in this you know this really. Uh, not so great neighborhood in Austin and um, end up meeting um, I believe she was a hooker um, and she's like you're down here to score and I was like it's funny you ask because I am and so she introduces me to her pimp slash drug dealer and uh, like you do right yeah and so um, we end up uh, becoming business associates and I uh, what that looks like is like every day at lunch because I kind of had my own I made my own hours initially. I was able to be in and out. So it would be like I'd go to work for like two hours in the morning and then I would go and meet my uh, drug dealer at whatever um, shady motel he was in Mm -hmm. and get high and play like NBA 2K um, with my drug dealer for like two hours and then go back to work and like nod out. And, uh, you know, here I am in this multi-million dollar business, you know, in in slacks and a dress shirt uh, in the bathroom at work shooting up heroin um which is just not normal no and so yeah and so that came to um that came to a close pretty quickly about three months into my austin um adventure i had been up all night um doing drugs and i'm at work and just could not stay awake and i'm like okay this is a bad so i remember leaving and going down to the gas station to grab an energy drink. I'm like, this will help wake me up a little bit. I'm just gonna take the rest of the afternoon off. Well, I fall asleep behind the wheel on a very dangerous highway and came to uh, three lanes over into oncoming traffic and overcorrected and had a head-on collision um, at about 60 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, um, neither one of us were injured. Both vehicles were totaled. But at that point, there wasn't really any hiding um, what was going on anymore. So call mom to tell her that I've uh, absolutely just destroyed the vehicle that I was driving at the time. And um, And she she thinks at this time you're still separate. Yeah, but I think at this point she had a hunch. So later that night, we get a knock on the door and here is my mom who has driven all the way from Norman without telling me. (laughs) Such a mom move. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. She has this crazy. Six hours, seven hours down to Austin. Right. And she's just like, you're getting high again. And I was like, at that point, I was like, yes, I am. And so um, obviously was in a very toxic relationship at that point. And what that looked like was uh, I was like, all right, Angela and I are in a bad way. So, uh, put her on a train and she goes back to Enid and I'm like, I'm going to go back out to Arizona where I had some success and got into a program out there and did really well for about 10 months. So that would be your fourth time? This would be, this would be rehab four. Yeah. So, um, get out there, do really well and meet yet again. (laughs) Another another girl in Arizona. So do we understand the pattern now? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was starting Alex to... Alex likes the lady. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was starting to kind of get the hint, but, um, you know, I was staying sober, but there was a, a no relationship policy in the house that I was at, and they were going to offer me a job, so I just decided to keep this new relationship on the down low. And just to kind of give you an idea of how sick this was, um, because of what had happened, my failure or my, you know, the hard lesson I've learned about getting into a relationship newly in sobriety, 
um, I went to the treatment center that I'd gone to beforehand to, to speak to the uh, client base there. And uh, that's actually where I met Jenny, um, <laughs> giving the conversation about what not to do. And then naturally, Jenny and I end up in the relationship. Of course. Um, so that was a pretty scumbag move. But uh, anyways. Um, <laughs> it's okay, Alex. We forgive you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, she's actually, to this, to this day, you know, she's doing great and is one of my best friends. So yeah, I, I made it about 10 months, um, graduated the program at six months. We ended up getting a place together and was happy for about two months and then just kind of started to get the itch again and uh, had a friend call me and was like, I'm going to go pick up. Um, I'm going to go and, and score. And I was like at work working for this rehab facility. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds like I can get away with it one time. So I take the company vehicle. Oh, I, I'm in the... Um, yeah, in the... Or the uh, rehab center that in, Yeah, in, yeah, I'm in the rehab van. Um, I pick him up, we go to pick up, pull into a parking lot, thankfully at a medical center, um, and decide to, to shoot up like in, in the car. And I overdose. Oh, immediately. No. Immediately, yeah. Overdose immediately uh, in the front seat of this van. And the buddy that I was with, um, you know that I had used with rushes inside and gets a doctor from this like emergency medical center that's right there and next thing I know I'm coming to and the EMT's got his finger down my throat and they're trying to get me to breathe and I'm like this is not good and so they take me to the hospital and I'm like okay uh, and I tried to lie to him at first I was like <laughs> I just took some time while PM I haven't right. sleeping well and they're like well you can either go to the I was like you have to let me go I know my rights they were like well we'll let you go but you can talk to these sheriffs that are out there. I was like, well, you probably better take me to the hospital so I can get checked out then if that's the case. <laughs> and uh, so I go and six hours later, um, you know, I'm thinking like, this is really weird. I guess, uh, I guess I'm stable now. They're like, you're going to get released soon. Just chill. And I'm like, you know, in my own insanity, I'm like, well, I need the keys back to the vehicle so I can go back to work. No one will ever know. <laughs> and uh, here comes uh Two, uh, t- two officers that arrest me, and uh, this was felony number two. Um, I get arrested for uh, internal possession of narcotics. My blood tested positive for heroin metabolites, and in the lovely state of Arizona, um, they can charge you for possession of a substance if it's in your blood system. So I go to, uh, yeah, I go to jail in Arizona, and uh, uh, the vehicle, the company vehicle uh, that was supposed to be to transport all of these guys that are trying to improve Stay their lives. Yeah, gets impounded and my boss is just, yeah, super pissed. And at this point, you know, it's a small community. At this point, the story's out. So yeah, I'm the guy that gets the DUI and the uh, and the possession charge in a, uh, in a rehab van. Legendary. Yeah. The story still lives on. So, if they're gonna do it, commit. Right? Yeah, go big or go home, right? And so I'm in jail. I'm trying to get out, and it's just a nightmare because I'm in a different state, and the way they do bail there is differently. So I sit, I sit in county for uh, for 30 days mm. after getting into it with the with the judge. Um, I was like hey you know this is my first mistake and all that and she's like this is not let's make a deal (laughs) Uh, you're going to jail and I was like well I guess that's that and so I get out and um, turns out uh, you know I was worried because I had felonies here in the state too that I was on probation for and I'm like great they're gonna accelerate that and I'm in a lot of trouble and that's you know in Oklahoma as well as in Arizona and so I get out and decide to uh, bring myself back to the state of Oklahoma to handle it um, against the wishes of uh, the state of Arizona. <laughs> and um, Your parole officer did not want you to do that. She did not. She, <laughs> it was kind of a bummer. While I was in, actually, I was coordinating a trip back because I got out on December, December 15th of 2015. And my mom was like, I want you to come home for Christmas and you can handle all this. And I was like, great. And originally my PO was like, that's fine, we'll just fill out a travel pass. Well, it turns out that the rules don't allow that. And so I get out and go to meet with my probation officer. Um, and she's like, so fun story, you can't leave the county 
or anything like that, um, we're going to force Oklahoma to extradite you. So if you could just wait around for us to rearrest you. Um, <laughs> yeah, for us to rearrest you, you'll just sit in jail and then Oklahoma will come pick you up and then you're their problem. And so um, she also informed me that I was uh, no longer welcome in the state of Arizona. <laughs> so I got kicked out of a state, um, which is, yeah. So I, I got, That's like worse than getting kicked out of a, you know, like banned from a bar. Like you took like the whole state. Yeah, they're serious <laughs> about that. Like, yeah, there. they were like, you're Oklahoma's problem now. And I was like, whatever. So I jump on a plane and the last day that I'm here, uh, I get a call from my PO that's like, I hear you're in Oklahoma. And I was like, well, there's no point in lying to her. And I was like, I, I am, but it's because I was trying to do this. And so she's like, well, come in and see me. Um, when you get back and that was New Year's Eve of 2015 and I walk in to go see and I had an idea that she was gonna like sanction me on my probation I was like uh, yeah I might do a week or anything like that well it turns out I did three and a half months um, in in county in Arizona is, yeah in Arizona which is a bad time um, <laughs> If you I go to jail, be fun. you're yeah. going to have a bad time. You're going to have a bad time. I got really good at, at pinochle and spades. Um, but uh, other than that, um, it was just wasted time. But it kind of taught me, you know, I will say this about the uh, correctional system. Nothing about being a Cajun up like that wanted me to, nothing but the environment would dictate that I wanted to make my life better. If anything, it taught me how to be a better criminal. Mm-hmm. So I get back to... Uh, I get back to Oklahoma and um, get released um, pretty immediately, actually, and go see the judge. And she's like, well, you've done a lot of time, you know, all things considered. So I end up not getting accelerated, um, which is just a miracle. Um, Here in Oklahoma. Here in Oklahoma. So they counted your time there. They counted my time there and they were like, listen, man, you messed up, but they really hammered you. So um, we're not going to, you're not in any further trouble here on the charge that you had which was, it was, it was a miracle. And so I get out and that alone was not enough to get me, uh, to get me straight. I made it about a month. Um, back here in Oklahoma? Back here in Oklahoma. I made it about a month until I decided one night after work that uh, I should probably go get high again. And so I found myself really, this is when I, I really got in deep. This would have been um, about April of 2016 and got myself involved with some really bad people that were really uh, connected. It was the first time I'd really dealt with, I'd say, organized crime. Um, prison gangs are ruthless, um, unfortunately. We have a, a pretty notorious one here in, uh, in Oklahoma, and um, they run a good amount of the drug trade, and I found myself uh, in some really dangerous situations with those individuals um, doing what I needed to do to get and stay high. And so within, boy, April to uh, the end of August, I uh, managed to uh, tag on two new overdoses that I survived, and then it was like, well, I should probably go to rehab again. So, so this would have been 2018. Right? Yeah, so th- no, this would be 2016. 2016. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is two years this, ago. Yeah, so uh, August of 2016, I uh, go to Valley Hope again. For the fifth, fifth time? Uh, this is my second time at Valley Hope, my but fifth time in treatment. Rehab, okay. Yeah, and so... Uh, yet again, meet a uh, really sweet girl. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, really sweet girl. And I, I fell for it. She was like, you know, I just got myself wrapped up in opiates. But she's like, I'm a youth pastor. And her husband is actually a really up and coming. Or her ex-husband. Okay. Say. Yeah. Wait. They were still married at the time. <laughs> oh, okay. But they were in the middle of a divorce. Okay. Um, and so um, we start dating. And... Uh, it turns out uh, it was not the um, picture that she had quite painted and I was like all right you know so I relocate myself to Claremore and we shack up together for a while and uh, I made it after treatment about a month and a half but the entire month and a half that I was sober she was uh, she was getting high and eventually if you find yourself in that kind of situation um, again, it was Alex not wanting to be alone, so I was like, well, I'd rather be miserable and with somebody than, than miserable and alone, and so eventually I was like, all right, so um, end up uh, end up getting high in Tulsa, and did that um, off and on for a while, and then got myself into a, a sober living um, out there briefly, and um, 
then came back home and proceeded to just go back to doing exactly what I was doing before, um, using a lot. Um, that would have been, boy. So I went to treatment in September of 2016 and found myself back at Valley Hope in February of 2017. That was number six? That would be... Uh, or number seven? That would be number six. Okay. Yeah. So, um, again, while I'm in treatment, uh, I meet Michelle. Um, <laughs> God, this is so sick. Um, <laughs> and... Michelle and I are hooking up while we're in treatment and get caught. And so they asked me, they're like, listen, man, you've been here two times already. You got to get it together. So I get kicked out of Valley Hope uh, two, and a half, two and a half weeks in. And the girl that I was um, involved with ends up going briefly to a new facility and then leaves. And at this point, I was like, you know, I really do want to stay sober. And um, she checks herself out of this treatment facility. I'm in a in a really pretty reputable sober living and in men's uh, ministry mentorship program in the city. And I get a call from her and she's like, I'm coming back to Oklahoma City. And I'm like, okay. And you know, the first night that I met her, she was high. Um, And I managed to to hold it together for a while. And then one day, actually, just to kind of give you a picture of how sick we were together, you know, I was not using, but uh, she was sick. And I was like, listen, like, I have a guy, I was like, I'd rather deal with you not in this mindset. So I hook her up with my uh, with my my drug dealer in the city just so that I didn't have to deal with her while she was sick, which is really selfish, but um, made it for a while and then uh, decide finally one day, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna get high and uh, get high. Um, we proceed to go on a little run together and I found myself homeless in Oklahoma City and about two weeks into getting high, um, we're at a 7-Eleven on, boy, it was like 39th. And it's some not-so-great neighborhood in Oklahoma City. And she comes out of the bathroom and goes, do you know what to do if somebody's overdosing? And I said, yes. And she overdoses in the front seat of my truck and proceeds to just go lifeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm freaking out. So I'm doing 90 down, you know, I-44 to try to get her to, I guess it'd be Baptist and driving while giving her mouth to mouth and trying to resuscitate her and carry her in and, you know, go in and she lives. Um, and at that point I was like, I need to get out of the city um, and do something. So I call my parents and tell them, hey, I need some help. And I go back to Tulsa and get into another program on there and did well while I was up there um, for about a month and a half and met a really great girl actually that was not uh, that was like normal (laughs) Uh, yeah so um, and we had a really good solid relationship and things were really good for about three months and I was coming home um, one day you know driving down the turnpike and decide I think I want to get high today so I get loaded um, and that just once I'm once I start, I'm gonna ride it until the wheels fall off. And uh, so, oh boy. Um, so that would have been in 2017. This would have been in 2017. Yeah, Susan and I were supposed to go on a weekend getaway to uh, the Wichita Mountains. We were gonna go camping, and things were gonna be good. We were serious, and it was a it was a healthy relationship. And uh, I end up going on a like a four day bender and standing her up for a vacation. Oh, yeah. That, that broke her heart. Uh, it did. It did. But, you know, this girl was really pretty incredible. She's a sweetheart, and I wish her the best. Um, so Memorial Day week, the weekend before Memorial Day, I'm just so depressed with my situation. Um, and at this point, it's like, the drugs aren't working. They're not helping me feel any better. Um, I'm depressed. I'm like, I want to kill myself. You know, so I uh, get into this massive argument with my mother one morning and decide, all right, this is it. So I grab uh, two bottles of of prescription pills and go to my bedroom and uh, proceed to take all of them. And three days later, wake up in the intensive care unit uh, at Norman Regional. Yeah, I mean, it was it was my my first time uh, being like, all right, I'm 
that miserable. I want to kill myself. So, and here comes Susan walking in to be my, uh, you know, she, to support me. And, you know, like I'm in this hospital bed with a catheter, or like the whole deal and just grungy and, you know, and she's like right there to support me. And I get out and uh, decide I am going to try an alternative treatment for opiate addiction. And so I start taking um, Vivitrol, which is a medicine they give you. Uh, you get a shot once a month, but what it does is it binds to the receptor in the brain that uh, is activated by opiates. And what it does is it's an opiate blocker. So you can use, but you feel no effect. Um, there's no euphoria and you don't get high. It's basically, um, yeah. And so I decided at this point, well, if I can't get high on um, heroin anymore, I should probably start doing crystal meth. Um, of course, because you right. know, what else you would are, you do? <laughs> just a hustler, you were a go-getter. Yeah, <laughs> no, so yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I start to, uh, I, I go from being a daily heroin user to a daily IV crystal methamphetamine user. And you know, I walk around usually probably about 2.30, uh, within about a month and a half, I was about 185 pounds. I'm just looking dilapidated and just crazy. Yeah. Absolutely off my rocker. Um, <laughs> well, meth does yeah, that Yeah, meth you. does that to you. It is not good for your mental health. Don't do it. And so that goes on throughout the summer. And naturally, like, I freak out on Susan one night in the middle of the meth psychosis. And she's like, you're nuts. And we can't do this anymore. So we split up. Um, and I didn't handle that well because um, in my drug-addled brain... Uh, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. But um, yeah, so I found myself in Rob's Ranch again. This is number seven. Yeah. Um, in, this would have been the latter part of 2017. This, yeah, this would have been September of 2017. So a little over a year ago. Yeah, a little over a year ago. Um, and do 49 days of treatment. And on my first weekend pass, decide I should probably go get high one day and then just go back to treatment. Like, you know, freebie. And mm -hmm. uh and so that wasn't the case. I ended up like disappearing for like a day or a day and a half. I forget what it was. And go back and uh, proceed to just like vehemently deny that I'd used any drugs um, while I was gone, which obviously wasn't the case. They gave me a UA and I was like, your UA is faulty. I didn't do anything. So they sent it to, <laughs> they send it to a lab. Like every addict ever. Yeah, yeah exactly. That like it's not me. It's your test. It's everything else. Why don't, yeah, yeah. why don't you trust me? Um, which is just a, yeah, a dumb question. And um, so like a week later, the lab results come in and they're like, if you'd been honest with us, you could have stayed, but, uh, but you were not. So I get kicked out of treatment again. And I go to a sober living house um, immediately. Um, in Oklahoma City? In Oklahoma City, yeah. Uh, another really good, so with, with a really good solid group of guys. But Michelle comes back into the picture. The uh, the one that I uh, had to revive <laughs> in the front seat. And it's crazy how things come full circle because I got out on uh, September 28th. We got high the afternoon of the 28th. And then on the 29th, I went and picked up. And I remember picking up and doing a shot in the front seat of the car. And next thing I know, I am um, in the ICU mm -hmm. at St. Anthony's. And apparently uh, I had done too much and I overdosed and it killed me. I was dead for three minutes in the parking lot um, at this gas station on, on Northwest 23rd in Portland. And uh, she actually, like I said, it's weird how things come full circle. She actually is the one that saved my life and called the ambulance and uh, they revived me. It was a bad deal. I had some cracked ribs uh, from the compressions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had edema, so I was coughing up a lot of blood. I was just in a really bad way. And so at this point, everyone's kind of putting their heads together and they decide you should go to um, Teen Challenge. It's a it's teen adult challenge, and what it is is it's actually no. Let me preface this with saying uh, I was not raised in a Christian household by any means, um, or a spiritual household at all, and so uh, I find myself in a assembly of God run, um, <laughs> yeah, in this rehab center run um, solely by assembly of God. And it's like not traditional, like 12 step recovery. It's like 
you know, Jesus Christ will save your life. And uh, let's pray it away. Yeah, exactly. Let's pray it away. That's exactly the. And it was. Um, I was so out of my element while I was up there. And what that looked like was. Uh, and whose bright idea was this? <laughs> It was one of the individuals that um, is pretty involved in the um, recovery industry here in the city, but he's like, listen, you've burned your bridges at every other... Uh, <laughs> this is our only option yeah, left. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is option Z. And so, <laughs> so I go and um, I spend two months there and like, no joke, like it was crazy. I had like people praying over me in tongues. And, oh my uh, God. Yeah. And this is in 2018. This, this is in 2017. This is in 2017. This is from uh, October through um, the beginning of December. And yeah, so I'm just uh, constantly. <laughs> this is what I was raised with. Yeah. Uh, long story <laughs> short. And, and what that looked like was like you'd wake up and go and work uh, to try and earn monastery, or money for the ministry. It's the people that you see like outside Walmart that are selling like, uh, like wooden crosses and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That was this program. And, um, so like, you know, like what my day looked like was like morning Bible study and then, um, just being condemned for my sins. And, uh, and so I make it a month and a half and finally I call my, my folks and I'm like, listen, (laughs) you guys can either like pick me up or like, it's time, it's time to bail. And they were like, well, interestingly enough, we met somebody that has a job for you in the oil field. And so, because there's no drugs there, right? Yeah, there's no, <laughs> there's no dope in the oil field, right? And uh, so, I go to the oil field and immediately um, get back to it. And then, uh, so at this point, like my folks are trying to do everything they can to to like keep me from like, so like I'm not driving or anything like that, like. But I met a you know just this really nice drug dealer that would deliver to me out in front of my house, um, you oh, know, convenient. at all hours of the night. So yeah, I had this guy come in and deliver him to me. Um, at your parents' at my parents' house, uh, which they were real pissed about when they found out about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, long story short, I just chased my insanity for a long time. But um, May fifth of this year, I had just completely disappeared. I'd gone off the face of the earth. I took an Uber ride up to the city. Uh, I turned my phone off and was out for six days or so, homeless and hanging around at this disgusting um trap house if you will just a drug house that was just a total shooting gallery like you know every every moment of every day there was somebody in there that was that was doing doing heroin or or meth or both and things kind of went south there and i found myself on the streets and i called my parents and uh talked to uh talked to them and came back and decided it was just time to make some changes um and since then, you know, my family has uh, certainly battled their fair share of, of addiction issues as well. My father is a recovered opiate addict, still a drinker. Alcohol is, has certainly, uh, while I still partake, I have to be very careful with it too because when I start drinking, I, I don't like to stop. But, you know, I live a very blessed life um, today as a result. But, I, you know, it's just, it's we're talking about the stigmas of things. I know that opioid addiction and... Um, all of that has taken kind of a front a front page. Uh, you know, it's it's very much in the face of the public now. You know, ten years ago, if you were an opiate addict, you were probably uh, in the eyes of the public probably a lower class um, minority from an urban area. Today, if you are an opiate addict, you are probably a, a millennial Caucasian kid from the suburbs. You know, I lost my best friend um, in two thousand seventeen uh, to a methadone overdose in Arizona. That hit me pretty hard. Um, and, you know, going back to when, um, as, as far as my regrets go, um, I think number one would probably be, besides the damage that I've done to my family and, and the trust, the guy that actually saved my life in that overdose in Arizona while I was in jail for uh, for that, because it was his connection, the, um, the police department decided it would be a better idea to hang the charges over him and to turn him into a confidential informant and allow him to stay on the streets. And Ian actually overdosed and died while he was there. So I didn't even get a chance to say, hey dude, thank you for not letting me uh, die in this van. And that's hung over me. You know, there's a, there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes with it, but I can also say that uh, I'm a firm believer and you know, anybody that, that's listening to this that knows anybody that's battling this, um, 
I guess my two messages would be, A, there's a way out. You'll have a lot of people telling you that there's only one way out. My recommendation is do what works for you. If you can escape it, you have a story that's going to help somebody. And that's what keeps me going is knowing that, you know, yes, I've done some things. Uh, yes, I have a criminal record. Yes, it's made my life more difficult. But at the end of the day, I can, uh, I can wake up and uh, I know that that day I don't have to hustle or steal or lie or manipulate to get a fix. I know that when I tell somebody that I'm going to do something, um, I'm able to show up and do it. I've restored my relationship with my nephew. Um, I've restored my relationship with Felina. You know, I was a ghost in our relationship for a long time. And today I can tell her literally anything and, uh, and vice versa. And that's happened separate from places. And so just regaining my integrity. And what it's really done for me is redefined the way that I look at myself and, and what self-respect is. It's not uh, how much money I have in my bank account or what car I drive or, you know, whether or not I have a cute girlfriend. It's like I can wake up today and try to be the best person that I can today. And if I mess up, I wake up tomorrow. You get another chance. And I get another chance to do it. And I don't have to put everybody else through um, through my mess because addiction is it's it's a messy business. And unfortunately, um, as much as those of us that have been stuck in it like to say that it's, you know, we're just hurting ourselves. It really is a family disease. Um, it hurts anybody who it hurts, loves you. Exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately with, with addicts, what's really um, unique is that a lot of us have this like, um, screw you hurt me mentality. Uh, so it's like, you've hurt me, so I'm just gonna hurt myself to get back at you, or I'll just use to get back at you. And it's nothing, nothing good comes from it. Um, you know, from the amount of time I've been, from the time I've started in recovery um, until now, um, I could say that between the people that I've met that were trying to get sober and all that, uh, you know, I could probably list off about 45 names of people that are no longer with us as a result of, of overdose. Um, the statistics are what they are. Uh, I, I think one in, one in 20 make it uh, and stay off of it. And I know something that you mentioned just finding your own way, uh, you know, this last time, May 5th being the last time, and you didn't go to rehab this time. No. You just decided this time I'm going to do it my way because I know we've talked about in the past, you know, 12-step program and all these other things, and they say, you know, don't drink even alcohol, don't do right. anything, and that doesn't work for you. Right. You know, it, it, it all comes down to me for personal happiness and, uh, and integrity and, and finding some dignity again. And if you can find those things, there's no reason there should be no inner drive to, uh, to go and, and pursue those self-destructive behaviors. So, you know, I won't sit here and knock a 12-step program. I know a lot of people that it has worked for. Sure. Um, it's worth trying. If you're in a spot, I would fully advocate saying go and give it a shot because it might work for you. It's worked for a lot of people. It's a huge fellowship, and I've met a lot of great people that I still keep up with. I don't um, pursue that avenue because, A, I think I'm a little too prideful and stubborn, and I can admit that today. Um, I don't like somebody telling me what I can and cannot do. And, and B, you know, you have one life to live. Do what makes you happy. Don't, uh, don't invest in what's going to make everyone else happy because... You know, uh, it's just like myself with relationships. If there's anything I've learned, it's that nobody can give me happiness and I can't give another person happiness. I can share it. Sure. But I can't make anybody else happy and vice versa. And so today it's just a matter of uh, finding some joy in the little things, you know, the things that really uh, bring me a lot of joy today. I have a five, a five-year-old nephew that I'm trusted with. Um, which never would have happened. In fact, I, to be honest with you, the day that he was born, I actually, before I even held him, I did a shot in the bathroom at the, at, at the hospital before I went in to meet my nephew for the first time. And that bothered me for a long time. But now just seeing the goodness that comes out of it and getting out of it, you know, I was a fish out of water. I'm not a, uh, I'm not built for the, uh, the street lifestyle. Uh, as, as tough as I'd like to act sometimes, I'm, I'm pretty soft. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not cut out for prison. And, uh, it's just, uh, you know, and, and well, I... you seem to me have to have found balance. Because I've known you in and out of rehab all these seven times. And each time you came back, you know, totally depriving yourself of absolutely any substance, including mm -hmm. alcohol or marijuana, seemed to not work for you. Because, uh, like you said yourself, you're stubborn, and uh, <laughs> yeah. now you seem to have you, you're different this time. Uh, 
I don't know if it's just my perception. I don't think it is. I mean, you seem to feel differently this time as well. Yeah. And I would trust my mental health issues. I think that's another thing that have, uh, they, they carry a huge stigma. People that battle depression or anxiety, things like that. Nobody wants to sit here and admit that they're sick. Uh, and I hate that term, um, but that's a big epidemic. Um, depression is very real. Um, for me, it's been very paralyzing. Um, so treating that, finding some balance there, and just redefining priorities to to manage the mental illness rather so, than you know am I am I proud of the things that I've done in the past? No, do I hang my head because of the things that I've done in the past? Absolutely not. Um, because if if anything, you know, it's moments like this that put things into perspective. Um, my life today is uh, while it's my life is not um, about me. It's about sharing experiences and building genuine relationships and trying to, because I think that's really what it comes down to, you know? There's a, about seven billion people on this earth. I, I, feel, I feel like if we were meant to, to just do whatever we wanted to do with no consideration to anyone else, it would probably be a, more crazy out there than it already is. So it's just a matter of, you know, I find the joy in the people that I'm around. I surround myself with people that um, bring out the best in me and, and that I feel like I can bring out the best in as well. And so, man, yeah, just, uh, there's a way out and, uh, just do you. You, know? <laughs> you can contact the podcast at broke, broken podcast at gmail.com. The broken, broken podcast can be found on Twitter at broke, broken show on Instagram and Facebook at broke, broken podcast.